Thanks everybody for giving me the chance to talk. Um, I selected urinary incontinence to talk to uh, um, about today because I think it's a common issue that uh, doesn't necessarily always get uh, as much credit as it deserves in terms of uh, the impact on families. And I just wanted to start uh, with a uh, introduction to um, approach and um, try to answer any questions anyone may have. Mission and values. <laughs> I have no financial disclosures, and I will talk about uh, off-label use of uh, interstim and alpha blockers. Uh. So our objectives today are to define uh, common causes of urinary incontinence in children and identify common comorbid conditions associated with incontinence. Um, I'll describe the standard urotherapy and initial management of patients with incontinence, and then also identify patients who may benefit from being referred to our service early um, for evaluation. <coughs> As an outline, I'll go over a little bit of epidemiology, and then I'll introduce uh, the International Children's Continent Society. I'll uh, focus first on daytime urinary incontinence, talking about initial management, and then I'll move on to nocturnal aneurysis um, and split that into both monosymptomatic and non-monosymptomatic. And then I'll give a quick summary. So the scope of the problem is variable, depending on what definition you use for urinary incontinence. Um, but based on the International Incontinence uh, Society, which I'll define in a minute, we'll, uh, there's about 14% of children aged four that have uh, urinary incontinence, and about four to 5% of children aged nine or 10. Um, so as you can see, that's a good number of children that are being seen in our medical offices, and um, it's frequently, uh, associated with uh, high family costs in terms of undergarments, uh, disposable uh, um, diapers, laundry, and then nursing and medical visits. So when we talk to doctors and or uh, families, it's not necessarily given much credit and oftentimes dismissed, saying it won't kill you. Um, but incontinence can be a marker for medical aspects of uh, renal function. It can be a marker for anatomic anomalies. And it also has a strong impact on quality of life, which I'll speak about. Um, in some of the literature that's been uh, recently published in the urology realm, um, the quality of life is severely impacted by any degree of incontinence um, rather, than, uh, rather than the amount of wet pads and amount of wet diapers. So I think when we're talking about children, this is something that we need to take seriously and we need to uh, um, give it the attention it deserves. Um, there can be long-term outcomes and persistence into adulthood if these children are not treated in a timely manner. And there's associated attention and behavioral problems um, that uh, can lead to uh, treatment-resistant conditions. In terms of the family unit, uh, it can be associated with behavioral disorders and separation disorders are seen with children with incontinence. And overall, you can see that the family unit is disrupted by the incontinence. We see families that come in and it disrupts the family routine, it causes parental stress, and changes their dynamics. And that can have implica implications for parental work and uh, loss of revenue for the whole family. When thinking about psychosocial aspects for the child, um, there is a strong association, multiple studies have shown that there is a concern for bullying. And this is something we see when parents uh, come in and they're concerned that the child is incontinent, they're in school, and they're worried about how this may impact the child's uh, social function at school. Uh, in this study, they looked at uh, the urology group of patients coming in with a questionnaire that evaluated urinary symptoms. And there was an association between more urinary symptoms on uh, the Vancouver symptom score and self or peer perceived victimization scores. Um, so this is not something that's just uh, theoretical, this is something that children do suffer from. Interestingly, 
When you looked at children presenting for a well-child check, they also had elevated Vancouver scores, um, indicating that perhaps this is something that we're not great at assessing because it's not something that children will often volunteer. But the children that were presenting to the pediatricians at a well-child visit actually had a higher association with the bullying scores on the survey that was used. So it was thought that perhaps on some level, children who were bullying those who had visible urinary incontinence may have problems of their own. And so I think that just speaks to the importance of trying to understand uh, who is being uh, afflicted by this problem. When we think about school attendance, um, it's the fall, so there's a lot of children that are coming into our clinic, and parents are, are very concerned because the child cannot attend school unless they're dry. And depending on the school, there's different rules. But we have seen this uh, repeatedly, that the parents want the child to be dry, the teacher is sending notes home, and increasing the stress for the whole family. And uh, if you can think about the cycle, the child's getting uh, stress from the parent and also being stressed in terms of um, having uh, not having a medical diagnosis or even necessarily a, an approach to treatment, um, but just being yelled at uh, and trying to be made dry without looking at underlying effects. I apologize, this is a little bit small, but when thinking about uh, school-related outcomes, um, the concerns in terms of parents being worried about children being wet um, are not unfounded. Uh, they, there was association with poor self-image and problems with peer relationships at school, and this was a study where they followed, uh, followed children who presented with daytime bedwetting or persistent wetting uh, from ages four to nine and followed them through adolescence. So this is something that can have a negative perception, in, a negative uh, impact in their development all the way through adolescence. The International Children's Continent Society is a multidisciplinary, organi multidisciplinary organization, and it's, uh, it's made up of pediatricians, pediatric urologists, pediatric nephrologists, child psychiatrists, physiotherapists, and researchers who are committed to uh, understanding how the lower urinary system works. And their goals are to standardize the terminology that are, that's used across the field uh, to promote research and encourage innovation in diagnosis and treatment. They also uh, have a goal of distributing quality materials and information, and their website is uh, quite comprehensive. There's handouts for families and information that can be uh, good reference points. These are just a few of the standardization documents that we uh, uh, reference in, in our practice and also uh, for children with various types of uh, um, continence problems. And I'll go over a few of these today. So for the initial evaluation of the child with incontinence, you want to first assess their daytime symptoms and then get a sense of if, she's, if he or she is having problems at night. Um, I always like to assess for comorbid conditions, previous management, and to get a sense of what has been tried at home and also any medical red flags. So some of the questionnaires that can be helpful um, include the Vancouver uh, Non-Neurogenic Lower Urinary Tract Dysfunction, and that's a handful, but we just call the Vancouver score. Um, and then the Dysfunctional Avoiding Symptom Score is made out of Toronto, uh, and the, the PIMQ is a quality of life measure. So the Vancouver score um, is uh, on there on the left, and this is a 14-question instrument. It assesses both bowel and bladder symptoms, and it's uh, scored uh, in uh, one to five thought to be at a grade level of 3.9, so it's uh, easy to read for most children who are able to complete it with the help of parents if they're younger. Um, and then there's an ease of completion score at the bottom that can be helpful in terms of whether or not the child and the parent understood the questionnaire that you're asking them to fill out. 
Another one sometimes uses the dysfunctional avoiding symptom score, and this was developed in Toronto and has 10 questions, and it's a little bit simpler. It also assesses bowel and bladder symptoms and has a section to talk about family dynamics and stressful events. And the last one I'll talk about today is the PIN-Q, and it's a quality of life instrument, has 20 questions and has been cross-culturally validated as intrinsic and extrinsic factors that look at the patient, the family, and peer questions, and trying to get a sense of how much this condition is impacting the patient's quality of life. This is the standardization document from the ICCS for um, daytime urinary incontinence, and uh, I'll go over some of the highlights of this. So when you look at urinary incontinence in the initial evaluation, first we want to assess symptoms. And uh, as I mentioned, questionnaires can be a very helpful way to uh, um, have the parent and the family uh, actually think about these symptoms rather than uh, patient and parental report in the interview. Because sometimes the parents come in with preconceived notions of why the problem is happening and what the solution should be. And I think that the questionnaire sometimes allows the family to step back and get a sense of how common this actually is and what uh, symptoms they're actually having. Um, the other thing that can be helpful is directly talking to the child, um, as uh, all, all of you pediatricians know that, but um, sometimes the parents give different answers. And uh, one question I like for especially the older children is, are there times you don't use the bathroom in school day? Because I think especially uh, with girls and boys, um, they have uh, social anxiety using the bathroom in different places, and that can be a barometer of whether or not there's someone who holds their urine for longer periods of time. Um, when we want to assess what they drink, we also want to figure out what is it that they're drinking commonly and are they uh, drinking things that could predispose to bladder irritation. We always like to get a strong bowel history. Um, in our clinic, we have the Bristol stool chart that can be helpful in terms of figuring out uh, where on that chart the child uh, and the parent think uh, their stools are and what's the pattern. And then finally, moving on to night symptoms um, and previous treatments. For me, the previous treatments can sometimes point out what the family dynamic is and also uh, what things are likely to work for this particular patient. When we think about uh, things that the family will report, sometimes they have a history of avoiding postponement and they can do a curtsy or a sitting on the heel or even a potty dance. Each child may have a little bit of a different one. Um, when looking for a Google image, um, I, the first thing that came up was the Princess Charlotte and Queen, but uh, I don't think she's doing avoiding uh, curtsy. <laughs> Um, but uh, this is uh, something that parents will say, yes, yes, that's what she does, uh, or that's what he does. Um, you know, they, I know he or she has to go to the bathroom, but they won't go. And that's an important piece of history because I think it gives a sense of, is the bladder being chronically over-distended, and is this someone who has learned some habits that are less than optimal? When we look at the physical exam, we always want to do a comprehensive physical exam, but specific things to uh, urinary incontinence, we want to look at the abdomen, see if there's any history of surgical scars, um, look at the genitals in girls, we want to look for any ectopic orifices, any adhesions, erythema of the labia, um, any masses, and then in boys we'll assess for meatal stenosis, any urethral anomalies, take a look at the back and the spine, and also take a look at the extremities to see if there's any signs that there could be underlying neurologic uh, disorder. When uh, other tools that can be helpful in the assessment include a urinalysis and urine culture, assessing for other comorbid conditions such as psychiatric uh, conditions, and then a bladder and bowel diary. Um, again, that's helpful in terms of writing down the symptoms so that the family can have a better sense of what it is that they're dealing with on a daily basis rather than the recall. Um, and then a uroflow, a post-void residual, and a bladder ultrasound. On here you can see a picture of the bladder ultrasound with a large um, 
rectum full of stool that's pushing on the bladder, and I'll talk a little bit more about the, the impact of that on our patients. When we think about subtypes of incontinence, um, one helpful way to uh, split up the different types of incontinence, which can be a little bit overwhelming, uh, are into continuous incontinence and intermittent incontinence. And from there, we can split into daytime and nighttime. When we think about continuous incontinence, this is something that for urologists piques our interest and we try to understand, is there something anatomic going on here? Um, oftentimes there can be an ectopic ureter in a child that might be continually wet and never had any periods of dry, uh, dryness or dry or toilet training. And I think uh, important to notice is in the female, um, this can be below the urinary sphincter, so it can present with continuous incontinence, sort of constant dribbling, uh, whereas in the male, uh, it's typically above the urinary sphincter and won't present with incontinence. And if you're concerned about this, we'd be happy to see a patient and or you could check a renal ultrasound to see if there's uh, any findings that would uh, go along with that. This is a patient that I took care of last year who had um, continuous incontinence. She was five, um, had an upper pole uh, dilated ureter. This is not the best picture, I apologize, but this is the, the ureter falling down. And then uh, we ended up uh, in the operating room doing an examination under anesthesia and her orifice was right here. Um, she underwent a robotic uh, ureter ureterostomy and uh, was completely dry afterwards. Um, other things anatomically that can disrupt the continence mechanism and lead to incontinence that might be missed initially uh, could be a ureterocele, which is an outpouching of the distal ureter, and that can extend even into the bladder neck and may disrupt the continence mechanism. This is just a schematic and then a picture of uh, um, a prolapsed one in a small girl. I'll say the vast majority of children we deal with have intermittent incontinence, and um, for the purposes of this talk, I'll focus on the non-neurogenic component of that. Um, obviously, when uh, evaluating a child, if there's any question about anatomic um, outlet resistance, that would be a reason to uh, start with some imaging and then refer on. And then the neurogenic population is uh, a population I have special interest in, but I think it's beyond the scope of the, today's discussion, so uh, we'll stick with the non-neurogenic, neurologically intact child. And when we think about the different types of incontinence, there's a lot of them. And I'll focus on the ones that we see commonly and how to distinguish between the two um, in uh, a primary setting. So this is an algorithm from the ICCS document uh, for daytime urinary incontinence, and it's a little bit overwhelming. But if you look at the start, um, when we think about children, we first want to rule out any children with continuous incontinence, and that would be a child that we would probably uh, like to see and evaluate and determine would this require a surgical intervention to improve the incontinence. From there, we'll think about intermittent incontinence and do an initial evaluation as I uh, discussed. Um, we'll also want to look, are there comorbid conditions that we can intervene upon, such as urinary tract infections that would uh, raise our suspicion that something else might be going on, bowel dysfunction, psychiatric issues that could uh, improve um, with uh, mental health counseling, endocrine disease, or genetic or chromosomal anomalies. One test we'll use often, uh, depending on the child and uh, their symptoms, is a Euroflow plus or minus an EMG, which is uh, looking at the pattern of uh, urine velocity and pattern of flow. Um, this will give us a sense of what the bladder volume was in the bladder, um, how much the urine flow rate, uh, how fast it was flowing, and also how much uh, urine is emptied. Uh, it also takes a look at the pattern of, of the flow, which I'll give some examples of. But in some children, this can be a very helpful test in trying to determine um, replicate their symptoms and also figure out what might be the, the source of their incontinence. 
These are some of the patterns uh, from the International Children's Continent Society uh, standardization document. And uh, on the left here is the bell-shaped curve, which is uh, what we would expect in a child who uh, does not have any trouble with urination. Um, the other patterns, this is a staccato versus an interrupted stream where the stream stops and a plateau, a prolonged low flow um, condition. Those can be indicative of uh, something else going on and would prompt further evaluation and treatment. And for the standard patient, um, we often start with what's called urotherapy. And this is sort of a blanket uh, term that basically uh, tries to recapitulate um, normal bladder habits and good bladder habits. So first we start by educating the family because I think a lot of uh, the anxiety that prompts referral and prompts uh, evaluation is the parents being concerned that something serious is going on. Um, and so I always like to reassure after we've done an initial workup with what I found on my physical exam and try to educate the parents about how the bladder works and how we can optimize its function. And for a lot of parents, that's helpful in terms of just figuring out what, uh, what they can do in terms of helping their child. And then the behavioral modification is something that can be quite impressive in terms of its uh, cure rate um, for specific children. Uh, timed voiding, we want the child to empty the bladder on a regular basis and prevent over distension. And then avoidance of the holding maneuvers. This is something that uh, does require a lot of family buy-in and does require a lot of um, uh, counseling on some children, but some, some children, once you identify this as an issue, are able to uh, correct their behavior and, and improve greatly. Um, we want them to have a balanced food intake, so we don't want them to be drinking too much at one time, small amounts throughout the day to stay well hydrated. Reduced caffeine is less of an issue in smaller children, but in the teenage girl that comes in with uh, irritative symptoms and incontinence, that could be uh, a, a big help. And then we want to avoid bladder irritants, which I'll give a list of in a minute. And then the last thing is regular bowel lifting. I think uh, children uh, are uh, commonly constipated and or have uh, a little bit of extra stool in the rectum, which can press on the bladder and lead to uh, overactive and incontinence episodes. And then in the European Bladder Dysfunction Study, all comers had about a 40% cure rate with these conservative measures alone. So I always tell families that this is something that can uh, be implemented and it might be an additive effect that each one of these things might improve the symptoms a little bit and over time we can make some progress. In uh, children with, uh, with daytime incontinence, timed voiding is a simple uh, thing that we can uh, do, and it does have a significant effect on uh, a lot of children. While it might not make every child dry, in this study out of Iowa, they had about 6% dry. Um, they had about 38% that had a significant improvement and 36% with a slight improvement. And again, as I mentioned, a lot of times this isn't additive, and we have to kind of look at the history and figure out what are the major issues for this child and what are the things that we can improve upon. Um, for this, we try to recommend the parents get either a watch that can buzz every hour and a half to two hours and give a note to school, which um, can help with the adherence during the, the school day. Sometimes we find that parents are, uh, um, do, the child does well during school and then does poorly on the weekends, and I think that can be indicative of the schedule that they might be on. So some of the bladder irritants that we commonly uh, run into in our clinic are the C-list, um, anything with caffeine, carbonation, citrus, chocolate, colors, food dyes, citric acid, and or spicy foods. And um, depending on the child, uh, it's, it's interesting when you get a history, sometimes they say, oh, I drink, I drink soda every day at school and uh, orange juice. And then the parents say, oh, no, no, they just drink water. So I think you have to get uh, a, a 
buy in from both family members and also get a sense of what they're really drinking. And that's where a diary can be helpful, where they can record what they eat and drink for a few days before they come visit um, the your follow-up visit and get a sense of really what they're consuming. Um, because sometimes at school and babysitters and grandma, they might be having more bladder irritants in their diet than the family may initially think. Um, and then I always tell families to take a look at uh, things for citric acid. It's in a lot of things. Um, and if your child is someone who's sensitive to that, that can uh, also be hidden in a lot of foods that you think were otherwise uh, not going to be irritating. And the thought with bladder irritants is that, again, that they can irritate the bladder and cause uh, frequency, um, overactivity of the detrusor, which can lead to incontinence in some uh, patients. <coughs> When thinking about urotherapy, um, some of the groups out of Canada have looked at some alternative methods because it can be a little bit time intensive to go over all of these uh, concepts with the family in the office, especially if they're um, requiring uh, re-education. Um, this was a bladder training video and they had, I was trying to get a graphic of it, but unfortunately they're doing another study so I wasn't able to pull the graphic or an example of the video. Um, but they had Becky the bladder and Will the water bottle that were um, two videos that the parents and family could rewatch repeatedly that keep, uh, emphasize key concepts such as timed voiding, increased fluids, and then constipation management. And they found that uh, they were not inferior to education in the clinic by uh, nurses and physicians, um, and also had an improvement on the quality of life. When we think about uh, terminology, um, bowel and bladder dysfunction is an umbrella term used for both lower urinary tract dysfunction and bowel dys dysfunction. And the thought is that with rectal distension, you can lead to pressing on the bladder and also some detrusor overactivity, along with some pelvic floor activity, overactivity, which can lead to um, discoordinated voiding and or uh, upregulation of those muscles. In terms of the terminology, I noted in the beginning that the ICCS is useful in terms of uh, defining terminology. It can be a little confusing because there's bowel and bladder dysfunction, which is the preferred term, um, and then dysfunctional voiding, which is a specific term noted on EMG from our Euroflow, as I talked about earlier. So I think that sometimes those terms are used interchangeably, and while that's not too much of an issue, I think it does lead to some confusion for the family when they go do a search. Um, so uh, that's just one thing I wanted to point out, that the dysfunctional voiding is its own entity. Um, and we find that uh, children who are neurologically intact have developed some habits where they overcontract that uh, sphincter during voiding and can lead to poor flow and symptoms. <coughs> When thinking about comorbid conditions, I think um, anyone who uh, has uh, dealt with children with um, anxiety and uh, behavioral disorders um, would probably uh, see the relationship with daytime incontinence. And sometimes these can be challenging populations to treat, especially when a lot of our treatments are um, based on behavioral interventions. So I think a lot of parents uh, come in with concerns about their child with ADHD who's very uh, hyperactive um, and or someone who has a lot of anxiety, and that can manifest uh, with incontinence and also difficulty implementing some of the strategies that we suggest. Um, there is a relationship with daytime incontinence and behavioral children in children problems in children, and um, there's certainly a lot of literature out there trying to figure out what the best approach for these patients is. Um, one, uh, one attempt was a Europsychology clinic. Again, out of Iowa, they did a um, early uh, collaborative sort of pilot program looking at um, Europsych together. And these patients had 90-minute new visits. Um, the majority of their patients did have uh, ADHD with overlap with anxiety and oppositional defiance disorder. And um, they found that about 26% of their children could be improved to discharge from neuropsych care over time. And so I think that that's something that perhaps not for every child, um, but for the refractory patients, this might be something that could be useful in the future, um, depending on uh, 
on what the specific complement of uh, problems would be. And then a lot of parents come in and are concerned that their child has ADHD. Will they ever be able to be uh, completely dry? Will we be able to help them? And I think that the literature is mixed in terms of the outcomes with patients with ADHD. But um, Von Gontard, who's done a lot of studies um, looking at children with behavioral problems and urinary incontinence, um, did have a, a study uh, about two years ago that looked like there was delayed daytime and nighttime continence. But, um, once the ADHD was treated and optimized, there was no difference in the continence between the two groups. So I, uh, I think there's hope that you know once the children are on a good regimen and able to have a uh, stable, um, you know, school program and schedule, there's. Uh, I always tell parents that you know it's something that will be a work in progress, but uh, it doesn't mean that they can't get dry as well. One thing that we commonly see in our um, patient population is urethrovaginal reflux. And this is a small volume post-void incontinence and thought to be based on little girls sitting on the toilet and some of the urine, instead of going out into the toilet, goes back into the vagina. And then when they stand up, they can get uh, wetness on the underpants and that over time can lead to irritation of the skin, labial erythemia and excoriation. And then even in some severe cases, that can lead to uh, voiding postponement and kind of restart the cycle of uh, urinary problems. It's pretty common in overweight children and um, something that uh, once you uh, get a careful history, you can and figure out, oh, this might be what's going on as well, or might be the primary problem. And the treatment, this is obviously not a girl, um, but apparently this is also a toilet training hack um, to have your child sit on the toilet backwards. But um, anterior pelvic lift and then split leg voiding sitting on the toilet backwards can be helpful in terms of getting the urine out and preventing any uh, um, skin changes and uh, long-term effects from that. And then weight loss, which is obviously easier said than done, um, but that can also be helpful. When we think about refractory incontinence, refractory to our initial measures, um, we always want to make sure that there's uh, nothing more serious going on if we, they've failed and really been diligent about the behaviors that we've asked them to do in addition to the um, initial uh, trial of urotherapy. Um, so depending on the patient and uh, their specific symptom complex, we can consider cystoscopy, which is looking inside the bladder in the operating room, uh, vaginoscopy to assess the anatomy, and then also urodynamics. This is a picture of um, the urodynamics uh, uh, tracing where we would take and put a catheter in the bladder and catheter in the rectum to assess the, the um, abdominal pressure and then also uh, some patch electrodes along the pelvic floor muscles to uh, assess the sphincter in the pelvic floor. And then this is a fluoroscopic picture of the bladder. And again, this is the algorithm from the 2017 uh, daytime uh, standardization document, but just looking at the various types of uh, um, incontinence and what the treatment for those are. At that point, I think we'd be happy to see any patient have any questions about and help try and tease out which, uh, which categories, if multiple, they would belong in. A few things that are uncommon, but we do see um, giggle incontinence uh, is a sudden onset involuntary bladder emptying, and uh, nobody knows exactly what it's uh, related to, but thought to be maybe under the same uh, mechanism as uh, cataplexy. Um, it's in school-age girls and provoked by laughter specifically, um, and treatment uh, frequently can be helped by both biofeedback um, and more often methylphenidate can be helpful. But again, this is a diagnosis of exclusion um, because the majority of common things being common um, wouldn't necessarily uh, fit in this particular category. And then one other thing we do see is extraordinary daytime urinary frequency. Um, we can see this in early childhood as associated with stressful events and there can be incontinence associated with that. And usually that runs a self-limited uh, course. 
When we think about treatments for urinary incontinence, um, there's other things that we can do after our initial urotherapy uh, once we have a better sense of what's going on. Um, if there's uh, dysfunctional voiding and habitual contraction of the pelvic floor muscles in inappropriate times, we can do biofeedback. Um, we can do neuromodulation for refractory cases, uh, whether that be TENS or uh, sacral neuromodulation with implantation of electrodes. Um, and then cognitive and psychotherapy can be helpful, especially in patients who have uh, comorbid conditions uh, such as um, um, mental health concerns or behavior disorders. This is a picture of one of the biofeedback um, games. And basically the children, uh, it's used with uh, either a nurse or somebody, a pelvic floor physical therapist who's um, well-versed in this and they learn how to uh, relax and contract their muscles and they can move the animals around on the screen um, based on how strongly they're contracting and relaxing. When we think about pharmacologic treatment, that's definitely second line, um, unless uh, all of the conservative uh, treatments have been already tried in a, a pretty uh, rigorous fashion. Um, but we can often use uh, antimascarinics um, and uh, alpha blockers um, off-label use, depending on uh, what the origin, what the um, source of the incontinence is. And alpha blockers can be helpful in terms of helping the uh, bladder neck relax and also treating some of the overactivity, depending on the child. And then I'll just leave uh, you with uh, just a quote from this uh, standardization document that in the majority of children with daytime urinary incontinence that there's no structural, neurogenic, or other organic cause um, and a considerable comorbidity exists with other conditions such as nocturnal enuresis, fecal incontinence, and uh, constipation and psychiatric disorders. Um, so we always want to make sure that uh, we're fully assessing the patient, um, but uh, oftentimes there, uh, there aren't any structural anatomic problems, which is good news for the family, but makes the treatment a little bit more labor intensive for the family as well. So when I think about red flags, um, we want to make sure that we're not uh, missing anything uh, that needs immediate medical treatment. We want to make sure that the renal function uh, doesn't have any uh, problems, that there's no blood pressure elevation. The continuous incontinence, as we mentioned, is something that uh, usually piques the interest and wants to make sure that there's nothing uh, um, ectopic or any anatomic issues. Uh, on exam, we want to make sure that there's no neurogenic component uh, hidden, such as a spinal anomaly and or orthopedic changes, and then uh, look for endocrine or systemic illnesses such as uh, diabetes, glucose, or um, low specific gravity of the UA. And thinking about who should be referred, we're happy to see anyone you, you want an, uh, another set of eyes on or if the family wants to see us, but I think uh, children with continuous incontinence, um, anyone refractory to initial management, severe symptoms, or incontinence with febrile urinary tract infections that would uh, put them in a different category of uh, um, concern, and then concern for a neurogenic component. I'll move on to nocturnal enuresis, and um, I'll go through this, uh, but I put up both standardization documents that uh, can be helpful from the ICCS, and there's two of them because the first one is monosymptomatic uh, enuresis, thinking about only nocturnal enuresis, and then on the right is um, non-monosymptomatic uh, nocturnal enuresis, and I'll go over the difference between those two. But with all nocturnal enuresis, thought to be uh, three things going on, polyuria, an arousal disturbance during sleep, and a lack of inhibition of the nectaration reflex. So polyuria is defined as nocturnal urine production greater than 130% for expected bladder capacity for age. And uh, that can be um, diagnosed based on the frequency volume chart and bladder diary, um, and uh, also trying to figure out how much urine they're actually making throughout the night. Um, but usually that's uh, helpful to figure out what category these children live in. 
When nighttime symptoms are often the last to resolve, um, they can be a source of embarrassment. I saw a child the other day uh, from um, a different country, and the mother said, this is, this is the most shameful thing that we deal with, and I, I didn't seek treatment because it's really something I, I didn't ever want to admit was happening. Um, and then uh, at the same time, it's a parental priority because there can be a sleep disruption for the parent, and that can be, uh, have implications for work productivity, as well as um, uh, academic uh, achievement for children who are waking up multiple times per night. When we think about the prevalence, um, it's really variable depending on who you ask and what surveys you use. Um, but this was a parent-reported non-validated questionnaire that said about 10% um, of children in uh, Turkey had uh, enuresis. But uh, as I'll uh, go on, it really just depends who you're talking to. Um, and the question has been raised in the literature, are these patients monosymptomatic? Is this really the only symptom that they're having? Because if you're getting parental reported symptoms and uh, in a quick visit, um, otherwise you might miss some hidden bladder dysfunction. So sometimes the Vancouver and uh, the dysfunctional avoiding uh, questionnaire can be more helpful in terms of having the child fill that out and uh, get a true um, incidence of what's been, uh, what are the symptoms? Because bowel and bladder dysfunction may be silent, especially in boys, and the nocturnal enuresis may be a sign that they're having uh, poor bladder habits during the day. When we think about monosymptomatic nocturnal enuresis, um, the evaluation, as I went over earlier, I want to look at a urinalysis and a frequency volume chart to get a sense of what is the volume that's going in and coming out, and it's, are there uh, simple things that we can do to help, and then a physical exam, as I mentioned, uh, focusing on the urologic components that we previously addressed. Um, the cornerstone of treatment for this is uh, starting with lifestyle advice. So we want to take a look at time voiding during the day, treat constipation and limit fluids in the evening, which is where your frequency volume chart can be helpful in terms of identifying children that like to drink a lot in the late afternoon and evenings that might be able to be improved by just simple uh, modifications. And then reassurance depending on the age. Um, the ICCS does not recommend treatment under the age of five to six, um, but we will get some referrals for parents who definitely want their children to be dry. Um, and I'm sure that the PD nutritionists deal with this much more commonly than we do, um, but uh, definitely we, we don't want to be in, in putting treatment on children that are, are very young. Um, but a night calendar can be helpful to mark the wet nights, and that will give a sense of how often this is actually occurring, um, because I, again, I think putting it down on paper is much more helpful uh, for families to have some concrete evidence, and that can be helpful in terms of looking at the uh, response to treatment as well. Um, the noctur nocturnal enuresis alarm is, uh, I was warning parents that uh, it can be uh, very effective, but uh, it is labor intensive for the family. Um, the parents have to assist with the alarm because uh, frequently the, the history that we get is that children are very, very heavy sleepers. They won't wake up to the alarm. They'll sleep through the alarm and then everyone in the house is awake except the child who the alarm is supposed to help. Um, and so that's a very common, common uh, thing that we hear from families. And unfortunately, it's, uh, it's something that the parents have to help with, especially in the beginning, work with the alarm alarm um, and uh, it has to be used consistently. Um, the alarms can be a little bit expensive so I always warn families that this is this is what we expect of them and I don't want them to go spend their money $80 on an alarm that's really not going to fit within their family dynamic especially if the child is younger. Um, so I always uh, try to warn parents that this is really going to be a family commitment for the first few weeks of the alarm up into a two to three month trial to see if they're going to have a, a positive response. Um, and I think with that education that does help in terms of setting the expectation that this is going to be a, a, a work in progress. Um, but sometimes the families say, I'm not doing that. That's just not, not going to be something that, that we can do with our family unit. And I think that, that's okay to understand that that's not something that they can tolerate at the moment. 
Uh, desmopressin can be helpful in uh, some patients. I use this more as a Band-Aid for social situations and uh, depending on what you read, anywhere from a 30 to 40 percent response rate. Um, side effects can be water intoxication and hyponatremia, so um, I always want to counsel about fluid restriction in the evenings, um, and this is uh, helpful in children that uh, do have polyuria. And then combination therapy can be used uh, depending on uh, what um, the patient otherwise is uh, having problems with. Um, if they're non-responsive to DDAP, uh, the anticholinergics, or if they're partially responsive, can be helpful in terms of um, helping uh, these symptoms. Usually that's for refractory patients, but uh, in children who have reduced functional bladder capacity and some degree of detrusor overactivity, the anticholinergics can be helpful. Um, and the thing you need to worry about is uh, side effects of constipation from the anticholinergic treatment, which can again sort of start the cycle of uh, problems during the day as well. Um, so I always warn parents that uh, once we've gotten to that point that they uh, have to keep an eye out for that. And then when we think about non-monosymptomatic enuresis, I think in the urology clinic, we tend to see this more commonly than uh, straightforward um, monosymptomatic enuresis. And that's enuresis in children with any other lower urinary tract dysfunction and history of bladder dysfunction. And again, that includes both nocturnal enuresis and then lower urinary tract dysfunction. So as, uh, as you can probably get to at this point in the lecture, we want to treat the constipation, treat the underlying lower urinary tract dysfunction, and treat comorbid conditions um, if there's uh, treatments available, such as uh, behavioral problems. And then we typically, once making progress on the daytime symptoms and the other symptoms, then we can move on to treatment for the nocturnal enuresis. I always warn families who come in with incontinence, urinary tract infections, and nocturnal enuresis that there's a variety of problems that we're addressing here, and we want to start with uh, the things that can uh, improve all of the conditions and then also try to get the daytime perfect before we uh, tackle the nighttime. Um, and usually the parents are, are more concerned with daytime symptoms and, uh, and are okay with that uh, because I think if you try to throw everything together at once, it's a little bit overwhelming. And then uh, everything has an app. Um, this was a study from a few years ago looking at uh, mobile phone applications in bedwetting, and um, there was a lot of them, and a lot of them were somewhat pricey for, for apps. I think one of them was 649. Um, this was from Australia. But um, basically, uh, we, we can use either a paper diary for um, wetting and or daytime symptoms, or uh, there are some apps out there. The first, uh, the top three on this list, My Dryness Tracker, Bedwetting Tracker, and Happy Time. Um, all said that uh, those were independently reviewed by a nurse, a pediatric urologist, and thought that those were the best ones out there. This is obviously a few years um, ago, but I think especially in parents uh, and kids who are interested in using something to sort of track how they're doing, um, that can sometimes be helpful, but there's definitely none out by uh, um, some reputable medical uh, societies, so I think that that's an area that we can improve upon. Um, again, who should be referred really uh, depends on um, the symptoms that they're uh, um, experiencing. Daytime symptoms plus nocturnal enuresis that's refractory. Uh, if there's parental concern, we're happy to see anyone uh, that uh, might um, uh, benefit from uh, an additional uh, set of eyes. And then behavioral disorders plus nocturnal enuresis may benefit from a combined approach. <coughs> This was um, out of uh, one of the other ICCS uh, documents, um, which I thought was uh, nice in terms of looking at, I apologize, it's kind of small, um, but basically it's looking at all that other comorbid symptoms and whether or not you should consider referral. Um, and uh, I think that that is helpful in terms of just organizing your thoughts about a patient with uh, multiple um, overlapping urinary complaints and comorbid conditions. And it introduces some uh, dietary and uh, behavioral modifications that can be uh, tried to start with. 
So in summary, urinary incontinence is a common condition. Um, conservative management is often successful, but does require uh, some, uh, some work. And refractory cases may require specialty input from uh, multiple uh, different specialties. If you guys have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. And uh, that's our phone number up here. And I'd be happy to email you any of the references that I talked about today.